welcome back to the Crisscross Corner. On today's episode, I will be talking to you about the cultural diffusion of hip hop. Yes, it's been a long time. I finally got to it. I'm finally gonna teach y'all about how hip hop became an international sensation. But before I start, please subscribe to the Crisscross Studios YouTube page. Also, join the Facebook group, Crisscross Corner, on Facebook, where you can see my top 10 list each week, uh, see what I'm talking about each week, and just join the community. There's some stuff that you can hear on the podcast but don't know behind the scenes, but all the behind the scenes stuff is on the Facebook page. Also, please follow me on Instagram, the Crisscross Corner Instagram. All right? It's there where you can send me my top 10 topics. All right? Send me the top 10 topics that you want me to talk about. All right? We're just going to go straight into it. We're going to talk about this hip hop, this hippity hop music. All right? Hip hop music. Uh, it's pretty, pretty dominant nowadays. It's 2020. Hip hop is dominating the church. It's just everywhere. It's literally everywhere. Hip hop is the music that took the world by storm. And it's hard to believe that it was 50 years ago that hip hop started. Yeah, hip hop is the music that took the world by storm. It is the universal feeling from another dimension. Hip-hop is the beat within your soul. Hip-hop is the music that transforms the way of life, not just in the United States, all right, but around the world. Hip-hop is, I would say it's my third best music. Of course, rock is my favorite music. And then you have R&B, which is my second. Then you have hip hop, which is my third. Okay, that's you know, life of Chris right there. All right, hip hop's cultural impact has reshaped the American narrative in extraordinary ways. It is nearly impossible to travel the world without encountering instances of hip hop music and culture. Not only did Black and Brown communities in New York City create a sound that was theirs. They created a sound that would unite the country in ways only music could. What is hip hop anyways? Hip hop refers to the music, arts, media, and cultural movement and community developed by black and Latino youth in the mid 1970s on the East Coast of the United States. The components of hip hop include one, DJing, two, turntablism, Three, the delivery of lyricism in rapping and MC, breakdancing and forms of hip hop dance, graffiti and writing, and of course, the audience. Music wouldn't be music without an audience, okay? All of these elements would be born in a Corbusier inspired structure in the Bronx. Yes, if you live in New York City, you know about the famous site where hip hop started, 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx, all right? It is noted as the birthplace of hip hop. So whenever you go to New York City, cross the Washington Bridge, you'll be able to see the 1520 Sedgwick Avenue that is where hip hop started, all right? The structure stands minutes away from the Cross Bronx Expressway, all right? And it is an attraction for music history books. This location will be essential to understanding the geographical diffusion of hip hop, all right? So we have Northern Manhattan, South Bronx, that area, okay? That's where hip hop started, all right? As we look back, we can see that hip hop and its different subgenres would not have been 
what they are without the assistance of a collaboration of many, I won't, I, I'm going to say this, some of y'all might be, you know, rubbed the wrong way, but it wouldn't be what it is without the assistance of racist practices that the United States continue to shove under the rug. The first and most important racist practice would come from the urban planning side of the conversation. Yes, I'm going back to urban planning because that's what I do, all right? And I'm also a historian. That's why I'm talking to you guys about this right now. It's crazy to believe that poor urban planning practices gave birth to a sound that would transform race relations for years to come. However, it is indeed true that theories of making the city more accessible would help make hip hop more accessible. Urban renewal was a way of revitalizing a city and getting rid of the negative elements, which are, you know, dilapidated buildings and older infrastructure. Um, but you know what? A federally funded program to demolish old buildings and decaying areas of the city to make new ones. That's what urban renewal is. Um, of course, urban renewal has its negatives on the community. All right. It is often accompanied by the demolition and displacement. All right. So you demolish these buildings, then you make new buildings, displacing people already living there or having dilapidated areas where people move out and there's nothing, no one there to live. Making the area undesirable, which in turn, urban renewal comes in, okay? Another thing, eminent domain, all right? Using eminent domain, the federal government plowed through urban decay to make way for new developments. The blight, however, was often areas where poor people lived. Right? So back in the day, like South Bronx and uh, Northern Manhattan, well, hard to believe, but it was once, you know, huge Irish community, huge Polish community. Then uh, of course, you know, as most Northern cities, they all moved out and then became, you know, Italians, then the Italians moved out. Then the blacks moved in. Now, it's if you look in New York City right now, it's primarily Latino Americans who live there. So yeah, so generations of new people moving in and moving out. So uh, as the new developments were created, many of the displaced had no choice but to crowd into other lower grade housing that they could afford. And the result of overcrowding only has the decay of those buildings. Thus, slum clearance created more slums. All right, that's what happened in New York City. If you look at old movies of New York City, it's a dirty place. All right. Many communities were split in half or completely eliminated due to freeway construction or redevelopment. Over time, as the population decentralized, like I said, everybody moved out, middle classes, upper classes fled, leaving lower classes in. Uh, many of the communities adjacent to the freeways have become concentrations of impoverished citizens. And that's what happens. Uh, land clearance and highway construction, which targeted the most rundown neighborhoods, frequently set off a chain reaction. Displaced African-Americans crowded into remaining ghetto blocks and pushed middle-class blacks out of, to the other side into previously white districts. Like I said, they used to be Irish and Polish and Italian, all right? Uh, one of these uh, freeways, which is still there now, uh, the Cross Bronx Expressway uh, is, which it was conceived by Robert Moses. You know, everybody knows who, uh, Robert Moses. If you don't know who Robert Moses is, he was a powerful city planner who sculpted the landscape of New York City. So if you visit New York City, uh, you're gonna run into a lot of stuff that he planted, all right? So 
The Cross Bronx Expressway, as I go back to my conversation, displaced many residents. In an attempt to reduce displacement, Moses looked to the French modernist architect, Le Corbusier, and his Towers in the Park concept. All right, that was a plan to remodel the center of Paris for the working class. Paris would say no to Corbusier, but Moses implemented the idea in the US, okay? So oh, the only problem that Corbusier had, the only problem that Corbusier wanted, all right, they wanted working class people working in the city, not having to come in from outer areas just to keep a bed. Problem was New York City, everybody knows New York City is densely populated, especially Manhattan. You have 1.5 million people living on a small island. That's a lot of people. So the only problem is that Corbusier wanted social, political, and economic resources for his residents. Moses extracted the physical concept and ignored, all right, the political and social, all right? He ignored it all. So Robert Moses, complete disregard for the displaced citizens, social, political, and economic resources relate to more buildings falling apart, fire hydrants uncapped, cars broken into, leading to drugs being sold, increased gang activity, and dead bodies on the ground in the Bronx, in Upper Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, of course, Yonkers, Mount Vernon, Jersey. All right, this is what happens when you don't tend to the people and just work on the physical of the area, okay? That's what happened in the 60s and early 70s in New York City, okay? So basically, the Black and Latino communities became a war zone, literally a war zone, that would remain permanent due to the racist urban planning practices of the early to mid 20th century. However, the Cross Bronx Expressway would be the urban renewal project that would be the catalyst for hip hop music and bring African Americans and Latino Americans, the, their communities out from the shadows and onto the main stage of American culture, okay? That was the first one. So we had eminent domain slash uh, urban renewal, okay? Uh, the second racist practice came from the music industry. So all the old heads are saying, yep, yeah, uh-huh. Everybody, as still as today, music is pretty much split between black and white audiences in America. White people have what they listen to, and black people have what they listen to. Back in the day, still the same. However, back in the day, it was more in front of you. Smack dab, uh, we're not gonna play your music. So, the second racist practice came from the music industry. For years, music in the black community has have to cross over. They had to have a crossover effect to make a dent in the charts, okay? So I'm talking about the late 60s, early 70s in popular music. People already know about, you know, early, you know, blues, uh, R&B, Motown music. That was, that was basic black music that was essentially made for, you know, crossover white success, which they did. And they talked to chart for those musics. Uh, what those songs? I can't speak today. Hey, Tom, Chris can't say songs. He said musics. Back to you. All right. Um, in the infant years, okay, hip hop was like totally underground. Like nobody even knew what it was. We were still listening to doo-wop and freaking Motown music. So Back in the day, black music had to cross over to get any significance. Of course, the black community liked it, but a lot of white communities didn't even know about it. Whoever doesn't know what crossover means, it means when your music from, my, uh, from my, uh, minority groups gets into the ears of white listeners, okay? Because believe it or not, America, white people are the majority of this country, 54% are white. So if they don't hear it, you basically don't mean anything. 
Yes, I'm saying this on my podcast. So if more white people listen to your music, the more popular you'll be. We'll get to that later. And I want you guys to keep in mind that South Bronx, North Manhattan, Harlem, that's the location we're at. And then this, white people, crossover music. Those are the two things I want you guys to keep in mind for this podcast. And there's gonna be more. I'm gonna put these all together at the end. All right? So, in its infant years, hip hop in the 1970s, which was primarily black and brown music only, had to compete with the black music that had the biggest crossover known to date. Of course, we're talking about in New York City, uh, black music became highly commercial. They were going away from the Motown era and they're moving into a new era. A lot of people know this as disco, disco music, uh, more punk rock on the white side, okay? So black funk music was huge in the late 60s, early 70s, okay? So let's put this in chronological order. You had black funk star, then it got to the big markets. Big markets commercialized it, added some more beats to it, creates disco, okay? So black funk music had to appeal to white ears to remain relevant on record labels, all right? They wanted to monopolize on the new sound, okay? Just like the original Motown sound of the 1960s, disco artists had to tweak their sound to appeal to the majority of the country. Hip hop was essentially, was a disco rebellion, okay? Because they did not like disco at all. It was a rebellion that would soon tap into the majority and transcend race barriers. We'll get to that later. I'm still setting up the story. Okay, so let's go back to North Manhattan, South Bronx, all right? On August 11th, 1973, DJ Cool Herc threw his first party. What separated Herc from other DJs at the time was that he did something different with his records. First, he would have two turntables instead of one, okay? He used two turntables, uh, and would begin to monitor the crowd for responses. Secondly, he decided to use instrumental breaks of the records, the part when it's just, just, just the beat, okay? Just the instrumental beats of the songs, all right? He used the beats because it was the part of the record that dancers seemed to like the most, all right? So let's keep this, let's keep this in mind. This is the start of hip hop we're talking about right now. Kuhirk's reputation spread all across the Bronx and Northern Manhattan in the 1970s. Other people wanted to be like DJ Kuhirk, you know what I'm saying? They just wanted to, you know, they want to get up in the, get up in the mix. They wanted to be just like him. But some wanted to be greater than Kuhirk. Kuhirk really much stayed in the Bronx, you know. He went, you know, ran around New York City, you know, DJ and stuff. However, another DJ, on the south side of the Bronx, called Africa then, Bam Bata, all right? He was a former, uh, former gang leader of the Black Spades. Uh, I'm not gonna talk about the Black Spades a lot in this because it's just a former gang in New York City that was very brutal, very violent in the Bronx at the time. Like I said, Robert Moses' practice has led to a lot of gang activity increase in the Bronx and North Manhattan. So Africa Bam Bata was a product of all that. However, he changed his life around, folks. He organized his first party in November of 1976 at the Bronx River Projects, all right? He inspired, he inspired many more to come, but he was inspired by DJ Cool Herc, all right? Or Cedric Avenue in the Bronx. He was inspired by Herc's break-centered style as opposed to a song-centered DJ style, all right? He founded the organization called the Zulu Nation to promote and end gang warfare in the Bronx. Bambata would use rock albums as well to be the focal point of his beats. 
the black and Latino audiences would go crazy over rock instrumentals that would be from music they never thought they would be appreciated. Okay, let's go back to what I was talking about. 60s and 70s music. Rock is not a black music, okay? Originally it was. I'm not gonna say it's not black music, but originally it was. However, rock music is on the white side of the spectrum, okay? However, a lot of rock breaks, like just the beats, are to die for, and can be used in a lot of hip hop songs, which they are. And that's what that body did. Okay? Bambada would use this technique and take it to like the white clubs, not the black clubs. He did black clubs a lot, black clubs and black parties, but he went downtown to the white clubs, okay? Downtown Manhattan, where the rock scene was, okay? Bambada would use this technique and take it to the white clubs downtown, and they would resonate with the right white audiences, okay? He would spark the first ever diffusion of hip hop. Like I said, it started South Bronx, North Manhattan, Harlem, eventually it moved. It diffused, as you would say, to lower Manhattan. All right? It's moving, folks. In the late 1970s, Hip hop started to, uh, started to become more mainstream in you know, New York City. A lot of people weren't really into the you know hip hop scene. Late seventies is more it was more about rock and disco. If you weren't hard rock or disco, you pretty much weren't getting any airplay. Okay, while Bambada was tearing it up in the Bronx and Lower Manhattan. Other musicians and record labels wanted to make their mark on the new sound. Okay? It's gonna be, we're diffusing again if we're going from Lower Manhattan and New York City over to New Jersey. One specific group from New Jersey would form the next chapter in hip hop diffusion. A lot of people are saying, he's not gonna talk about the Sugar Hill Gang, is he? Well, yes, I am. The Sugar Hill Gang would create the first. I would, I'm gonna say it, the first mainstream hip hop song in 1979. Many of you guys know it, Rapper's Delight, okay? It received copious amounts of radio play and sold numerous units. This was the moment when hip hop music reached a national audience. Not just New York City, not just Detroit, not just Toronto, not just Boston, this was, uh, it was in the top 40 of the Billboard charts. Now, I'm just going to dial it back. Let's just dial it back. 1978, 1979, 1980, disco was still at its height. So it had like a disco feel. Okay? Uh, everybody knows Rapper's Delight uh, pretty, is pretty much, you know, the good times, breakbeat, and he just raps over it. Everybody knows that. Good times, disco song by Sheik. Shout out to Nas Rogers. Uh, Rapper's Delight took that break beat and the uh, Big Man Hank just rapped over it. Okay? That's Rapper's Delight. Okay? Next. All right. Still, hip hop was seen as a black fad. All right? A black and brown music fad in the industry. Because ah, that hip hop, hippity hippity song was pretty good. However, the music executives would be eating their words within, I don't know, about six months. <laughs> so, yeah, we started moving out in New York City. Now, there was a top 40 hit on the Billboard charts, okay? As hip hop began to travel by means of black and Latino artists performing in downtown clubs, whites beginning to see hip hop through the means of graffiti on subway trains, without even stepping foot into the Bronx, all right? Graffiti, that's a main component of the origin of hip hop, okay? Without even stepping foot in black neighborhoods, the whites, I'm gonna say the whites, the people of the Caucasus, the whites, could visually see the beautiful revolution that was hip hop. Curious whites 
would journey to the Bronx or Brooklyn if you know if they weren't if they're scared uh, <laughs> to witness the hip hop revolution. One of those curious white people, or in this case, a white band, was the band Blondie. In New York, Blondie's members hung out with a variety of musicians, having access to hip hop music and the culture that inspired the band to incorporate both into its new look and sound. A lot of their older hits were like, uh, were a huge punk presence in their song. Then they started, you know, going around New York City. They got the reggae feel. They also got some jazz in their music. However, this podcast is about hip hop. So, we're gonna talk about hip hop. Blondie would rap about a popular hip hop DJ. Okay, because they went to the Bronx, you know, they met some DJs, all right? So, they rapped about a, a popular DJ they were told about in their number one, yes, I said number one, Billboard hit, Rapture. So Rapture, I didn't know anything about Rapture until I listened to it back when I was like maybe 12, 13. I was like, that's a good song. They should just start rapping. I was like, okay, stop, stop rapping. You can't rap. But that beat is to die for. All right? Blondie would rap about it. She would rap about the hip hop DJ, which was, you know, uh, I think it was uh, Fab Five Freddy. I believe it was that DJ. She was like, Fat Five, Fat Five Freddy told me everybody's fly, DJ. I say it in my mind, I just fast, but that's cool. She said it like that. However, uh, we're gonna go back to Rapper's Delight. Rapper's Delight was only a top 40 hit. It was like, you know, it didn't even break the 30s, I think. However, Blondie, talking about rappers and DJs, and she rapped it too, went to number one on the Billboard charts, okay? Number one, which means people were listening to it. And it was a rat and it was a white group who did it. All right. For much of America at the time, Blondie was bringing the styles of music into the airwaves and into the musical mainstream. A concept that will probably seem unusual in this more multicultural era of music. Okay? So Manhattan. New York City is like a melting pot of cultures. Blondie was a prime example of melting pot. Okay, you start off as a rock group, then you incorporate rap to your rock group, and then rap becomes a national thing. That is not a fad anymore. It is a thing. In the, now we're going to move to the 80s. In the early 1980s, hip hop was at the top of the billboard charts. Okay. It wasn't like dominating the charts, but select songs were dominating the charts. But they went for black artists. Blondie laid the blueprints. Okay, I can't talk today, folks. Blondie laid the blueprints to what artists had to do to become mainstream. All right, sad but true. Of course, you know, the OGs of hip hop are still doing their thing, but if you wanted to be number one on the billboard charts, you knew what you had to do. Yes, I'm going back to crossing over. You had to get to the white audience. Because without them, you make no money. If it's a new music. All right? Blondie had a rock audience behind him. They also had a disco following. So they had both of them, rock and disco, two of the biggest music of the time. Okay? Both of them. They were also a punk group, which was like the renegade white people. So rap was the renegade black and brown people. Punk was like the renegade white people. So they had disco, rock, and punk behind them. So of course they're going to be selling albums, and they did sell a lot of albums. All right. As I stated earlier, white equals power in music, which means popular. You're going to be really popular. In order to get music mainstream, you must please the majority. And that's what Blondie did. Okay. Now let's get to some real stuff. Let's get to some hip hop. All right. Let's get to some real hip hop. Don't talk about Blondie too much. Early artists of black hip hop. Yes, I said black hip hop. 
would cross over into white clubs with raps based on horrible conditions that they were living in. Yes, I'm talking about The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Although Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five's smash hit never generated any resources to combat the telepathic conditions in the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens, their music still resonates today. Yes, it does. It still resonates today in Black and Latino communities. Okay? Soon, artists like Africa Bambada and Grandmaster Flash would be eclipsed by a group that took Blondie's blueprints. So, Blondie took components to rock and rap, put them together. A lot of you guys know one of who I'm about to talk about. Okay? So Africa Bambada and Grandmaster Flash, OGs of hip hop, will be eclipsed by a group that took Blondie's blueprints and made hip hop cool for all races. Yes, I'm talking about Run DMC. Run DMC would add rock riffs to their music to appeal to a wider audience. Yes, they did. Listen to their hits. I'm not saying their songs, I'm saying their hits. Their hits like King of Rock, Rockbox, Sucker MCs, and Walk This Way with Aerosmith would become the first hip hop songs to be displayed on a national scale on MTV, like Blondie's Rapture. Okay? They even superseded Rapture. Now all they needed was a platform other than radio. Another thing we're going to talk about another racist practice. Like I said, the music industry was very racist. Major television stations were reluctant to play black artists. MTV was notorious for giving black artists little airplay because their music didn't fit, quote unquote, with the channel's rock-based format. All right? MTV was originally designed, this is what the MTV, you know, MTV uh, executives say, MTV was originally designed to be a rock music channel. MTV's former director of music programming, he said that, all right? Uh, it was difficult for MTV to find African-American... <laughs> it was difficult for MTV to find African-American artists whose music fit the channel's format that leaned toward rock at the outs... What? Anyway. Like I said, rock music was huge, all right? 70s, 80s, that was like, if you were a rock band, you were making money. If you weren't playing rock music, we didn't want to hear you. The most black artists in the 70s and 80s were disco groups, R&B groups, and hip-hop groups. So they're not going to give me airplay. White artists would get more fame and recognition for being on TV. First of all, you're on the radio all the time, so that's all you're going to be hearing. Then you're going to be on TV. So all that rock music, all the disco music, all the R&B music, it's just gonna be in your face, in your face, in your face. That's all you know. Black artists wanted that luxury too. So a lot of people know after legal battles with uh, you know, CBS and MTV and public uproar, yes, people were pissed off at MTV. MTV would play Michael Jackson's Billie Jean and the rest is history. So black artists would be able to be seen in the same light as white rock and roll artists. Hip hop music would definitely take advantage of the new platform. Like I said, Run DMC would collaborate with Aerosmith to do a reboot of the classic hit Walk This Way in 1986. That collaboration would unite hip hop and rock fans and would help diffuse hip hop music to the masses. Now this isn't just a national thing. This is now international, okay? Other hip hop artists like LL Cool J, Salt Pepper, the Fresh Prince of Jazzy Jeff, and Public Enemy would become huge stars off of MTV loops. Of course, not all hip hop artists were black. Sad but true. The downtown punk hip-hop scene came a man by the name of Rick Rubin 
who would join with Russell Simmons and create the first hip hop label, Def Jam Records. Like other black hip hop artists in early hip hop, they would just rap about fun topics. So, black people do it. Why can't white people do it? So a white group came from Brooklyn. Of course, I'm talking about, you know, Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys would release License to Ill in 1986. The Beastie Boys would pave the way for other non-black artists in hip hop, like House of Pain, Cypress Hill, Vanilla Ice, Macklemore, G-Eazy, and of course, Detroit's own Eminem, okay? To make their mark in hip hop history. Hip hop inclusion helped the music become more mainstream. Not just black and brown people were doing it. White people were doing it. The more white people listen to it, the more popular the music becomes. If one looks on the popular music charts, the top music is either hip hop or hip hop themed. Of course, as hip hop became mainstream, it magnified black America. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Fives, the message, gave white America an inside look of what was going on in the inner city. You might not have known it, but the lyrics were just out there. He told you what was happening. He literally told you what was happening. All right? Broken glass everywhere. That's what he said. Tultra just uh, possessed his car. Don't push him because he's close to the edge. He's mad, folks. And nobody cares what you go through. I sound like a math teacher. All right. Uh, as the 1980s came to a close, hip-hop became the land of two extremes. All right? On one side, you had the traditional evolution of hip-hop with artists like LL Cool J, Eric B. and Rakim, Trap Club Quest, De La Soul, Run DMC, Queen Latifah, and, you know, et cetera. In the middle of the road, you had groups that tiptoed on a line, you know, you know, in the middle, artists that had ideologies on American culture and black nationalism, like Schooly D, Public Enemy, Money Love, all those people, etc. On the other side, you had groups that white America were about to cancel. Yes, I said cancel. Cancel culture was back in the 80s and 90s. Okay. On the other side, you had groups that white America did not like and said, forget hip hop. And I'm going to talk about those groups right now. Hip hop that would include gang violence and sexual overtones. All right. Artists on the other side include. I'm gonna say it. Me so horny. Me love you long time. Two live crew. <laughs> Ice T, Scarface, and of course, Tupac Shakur, Biggie Smalls. I'm, 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 I'm avoiding this last group. NWA, niggas with attitude. In the late 80s and early 90s, the latter side would become the moneymaker in the industry. That's what people wanted, sex and drugs and killing people. That's what made hip-hop. Hip-hop was seen as an outlet for people of color's anger. Okay? They were angry because they were poor, black, disenfranchised, abused, ignored, etc. At this point in time, racial tensions were at a huge, like, it was at the peak. Early 90s, late 80s. You guys know what happened. I'm not going to get into that. Songs that exposed the reality of the inner city were under fire due to their explicit language, specifically when you use the word nigger and threats to law enforcement. Of course, I'm going to talk about Fuck the Police, NWA song that would be the poster child of the white bashing of hip hop. A lot of other songs were, you know, talked about, but Fuck the Police was a big one. The primary problem with the gangster rap subgenre is that many white listeners were afraid and disgusted at the fact that black artists would talk about attacking the police. 
This further fueled the generalizations toward black and Latino communities across America. Hip hop artists used their music to draw attention to the plights of social injustice and issues that needed to be fixed, okay? If you lived in an area where the police were beating your ass, you want to fuck them up too. All right, that's all I gotta say about that. NWA would preach a message about what was going on in the hood over a dope beat. Their songs are pretty good. A group called Public Enemy, on the other hand, would be the anti-establishment group that challenged the status quo. Public Enemy will rap about the same things NWA rapped about, all right? However, there was an ideology behind Public Enemy's message, all right? Like the message and fuck the police. Public Enemy's message would give hip hop a black nationalist effect on American culture. Public Enemy gave black America a reason to love being black and fought for the culture by digging up America's skeletons. NWA and other gangster rappers would tell listeners that the police are terrorizing the communities, while Public Enemy would tell listeners the history of systemic racism in America and why the police are terrorizing the citizens. You guys get the picture. So now it's nationally, now it's international, now we're getting to the nitty gritty. Now black people have a voice and they want to give it out to the American people and the world, okay? Albums for both NWA and Public Enemy would help usher in a hip hop sound in the 1990s. Artists like Tupac Shakur and Nas and Choice B.I.G. Would, would continue to rap about the places, uh, so it's social injustice uh, in the black community. Songs like Changes by Tupac Shakur, Juicy by Choice B.I.G. and New York State of Mind by Nas would be an extension to the message Public Enemy and NWA were saying in the 1980s. Although the black community praised hip hop artists in the 1990s, there was still that black white divide in the United States socially and musically. White companies would try to commercialize hip hop like they did to funk and disco, all right? And uh, R&B and rock. Hits like You Can't Touch This by MC Hammer and Ice Ice Baby will become the, the antithesis of black hip-hop and I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna say this right now to trigger my listeners ice ice baby went harder they can't touch this yeah i said it moving on both songs reached number one on the billboard charts however the artists who created those songs became melody x all right something a true hip-hop artist stood against MC Hammer's Can't Touch This and Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby raised rap music to a new level of popularity, however. Right listeners, white listeners, continue to keep hip-hop popular and keep bad generalizations toward black community at the same time, okay? They like the music, however, they're still hiding their purses on the elevator. In the modern era, Hip hop has become commercialized by both white and black labels. All right. Of course, some music acts have been nominee acts by like Soldier uh, Boy, uh, Lil Bow Wow. I can't say I said Lil Bow Wow. His name is Bow Wow now. But artists in the modern era play, uh, pay respect to the artists that have come before them. Hip hop was and still is a black form of music. It is not until the arrival of Eminem in the late 1990s where the white general public began to accept hip hop as a pure form of music. Like I said, the majority of the country's white. You got a white person that's really good to do black music. Okay, we'll listen to it. All right, Everybody knows the story about Eminem, so I ain't gotta go through that. Uh, today, artists from all cultures produce hip hop records. As stated before, hip hop and its subgenres would not have been what they are without the assistance of collaboration of racist practices from urban planners in the music industry and the general public trying to keep their generalizations toward minorities. In the end, the revolt against hip hop by whites became a collaboration of business ideas and sounds. Although whites still 
have their generalizations of Black and Latinos. They cannot deny the fact that hip hop was a pure form of music and it has changed the world. Hip hop is in ad campaigns now. They use it to sell shit. They use it to, uh, in art museums. They even used it for a logo for the Olympics in 2012, for the London Olympics. That's graffiti, guys. It's a graffiti-type logo for the Olympics, guys. Now it's worldwide. Penguins in Antarctica can see the freaking Olympic logo. And it all started back in the late 1960s, early 1970s in New York City. The diffusion of hip-hop music can be summed up with the following quote from rapper KRS-One. Let me say this right now. Hip-hop is the only place where you see Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech in real life. KRS also mentioned that hip-hop is beyond something as race, gender, or nationality. It belongs to the world. Ladies and gentlemen, hip-hop is here to stay. It's been 50 plus years since hip-hop started and I, 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 have, I have my opinions about hip-hop nowadays, but it has come a long way. I tip my hat to DJ Kuhert, 1520, Cedric Averton in the Bronx. I thank you for doing that party back in 1973, having Africa and come and take it downtown to the whites, having people from New Jersey make it to a top 40 hit, having Blondie go around New York City, grab the rap sound, take it to the top of the billboard charts, have Red DMC come in, collaborate with white groups, rock sounds, and take it internationally. MTV coming, getting rap music, putting it out internationally even more. And now we have the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. And now the 2020s. Now it's everywhere. Now you, like the top 10 billboard charts are pretty much all rap songs all rap, all hip hop. And we should all pay homage to DJ Kuhurk, Africa Bambada, and Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five for spearheading this movement called hip hop. And that is another edition of the Criss Cross Corner. All right, if you have any other topics you want me to talk about, please, 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 DM me on the crisscross Corner Instagram page. All right, that's all you gotta do. Just say, hey, Chris, you should talk about this on the show. And I might talk about it, you never know. You can also send me topic ideas for the top 10 every week. I will do them. I've done a few of my listeners' topics. And they like, they like it when I put my put their topics on my show. So send me a top ten idea. It doesn't have to be, you know, the best idea, but I'll talk about it. I can make it into a segment. Please subscribe to the Crisscross Corner uh, page on Spotify. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us on Google Podcasts. All right, wherever you can get this podcast, hit subscribe. Hit the notification bell on YouTube so you know when every time I go live. All right. Let's talk about some uh, hip hop songs that you know you might not know about or may know about. I'm just I'm just gonna go down the list. We have uh, Rappers Delight, of course, Sugar Hill Gang, uh, Rocksteady uh, by uh, Aretha Franklin which is used in a lot of rap battles, okay? Uh, Rapture by Blondie, we talked about that. If I Wrote the World by Curtis Blow. Planet Rock by Africa Bambada. King of Rock by Run DMC. Brass Monkey by Beastie Boys. Microphone Fiend by Eric B and Rakim. Can I Kick It? Yes, you can! By Tribe Called Quest. Fuck the Police and Express Yourself by Niggas With Attitude, 
NWA. Rebel without a pause, public enemy. I know, that's uh, E-Y-E, No by De La Soul. Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice. Summertime by Fresh Prince and Jazzy Jeff. Cream by Wu-Tang Clan. Nothing But a G Thing by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. Insane in the Brain by Cypress Hill. New York State of Mind by Nas. California Love by Tupac Shakur, Roger Taupman, and Dr. Dre. Hypnotized by Notorious B.I.G. I'll Be Missing You by P. Diddy. My Name Is by Eminem. Roses by Outkast. Izzo. Hova by Jay-Z. Lose Yourself by Eminem. Get Low by Lil John, Eastside Boys, and the Yin Yang Twins. In the Club by 50 Cent. Yeah by Usher. Gold Digger by Kanye West. Run This Town by Jay-Z, Kanye West, and Rihanna. Forever by Drake, Kanye West, Lil Wayne, and Eminem. Empire State of Mind by Jay-Z and Alicia Keys. Niggas in Paris by Jay-Z and Kanye West. Downtown Love by g Easy. The Matrimony by Wale. Jumpman by Drake and Future. And Humble by Kendrick Lamar. All right, so those are the 40 songs that I like listening to in hip hop, okay? Huge hip hop fan. Like I said, it's my third best music genre behind rock and roll and R&B. So that's been another episode of Crisscross Corner. Please stay safe, social distance, and be nice to each other.